If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Women Physicians Lead, hosted by Dr. Lisa Herbert, helps women physicians move from surviving to thriving in their personal and professional lives. Dr. Lisa shares leadership tips, burnout support, stress management strategies, and inspiration from women physicians who've made remarkable transitions into leadership roles. There's a fantastic episode that you should check out called Taking Care of Yourself During the Journey, about how women physicians can care for themselves while on their leadership journeys. Check out Women Physicians Lead on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. So Indians are often seen as good workers, they're hard workers, but they're not seen as creatives. They're not seen as the people who can actually think innovatively. That is another place where people began to really feel that discrimination or hit glass ceilings where they are recruited, they're valued for their skills, but then they're not seen as having the right set of soft skills or the right set of attributes to really progress in American society. Hi, you're listening to Healthcare for Humans podcast, the podcast dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. I'm excited to bring you the series on India today. There are many, many Indians. In fact, there are over 200,000 Indians in Washington state, and it's one of the top five countries of origin for all immigrants here. We have two parts with two guests. One is Dr. Amy Bott, author and historian, to talk about the history of Indians in Washington. The second guest will be Dr. Avantika Waring, endocrinologist and the chief medical officer of 9AM Health. So today's episode is a little longer than our previous episodes, and it will just be focusing on the history of Indians in Washington state. My goal with this podcast has always been to make sure that we do our best to translate knowledge into practical tips. You'll have seen that in the Somali episode and the Hawaii episode, where we talk about specific questions you can ask in a clinical visit. But for example, the Pacific Islander episode, where we talk about these larger societal forces that have affected the Pacific Islander community as a population, it may have been less clear. So today I want to spend a few minutes talking about the value of just awareness, even if you don't know what to do with it right away. We'll be talking about the history of Indians in Washington state, and we'll talk about the laws and policies that either promoted immigration or deterred immigration. Knowing this will help ground all of our episodes on the immigrant communities in Washington state. You'll also learn with that how part of the story of immigration in our country and our state is wanting and needing labor of immigrants and allowing them to come to our state, but then discriminating against those same immigrants that were helping build this country. We've always been taught how empathy and compassion are important in all of our interactions, but sometimes they can come off superficial because we don't know the context of their lives, their past, and what brought them here. And specifically for immigrant communities, it's knowing why people came here from their origin countries, what they faced when they came here, and what they've done to carve out a community for themselves to thrive. 
And I believe knowing this can help you connect with authenticity. And even if the suffering they've experienced in the past can't be undone, or you can't help undo it, you can be present with them. And after that, you may be able to be a better advocate for that community with the power you hold. To talk to us about the history of Indians in Washington, we have Dr. Amy Bott with us. She's the author of multiple books, including High-Tech Housewives, Indian IT Workers, Gendered Labor, and Transmigration, published in 2018, and Roots and Reflections, South Asians in the Pacific Northwest, published in 2013. She's a historian and a guest curator, meaning she coordinated the South Asian Oral History Project at the University of Washington and helped curate Seattle's Museum of History and Industries traveling Smithsonian exhibit Beyond Bollywood, Indian Americans Shape the Nation. And right now she's working on an animated feature film that's in development and also a television pilot. In this episode, we start by defining what we mean by India, exploring castes, and I do my best to summarize the history of India. Believe it or not, I do it in a few minutes. And then we talk about the history of Indians in Washington and the four waves of immigration. You hear this a few times, but I think it's worth stating it now, which is that the first wave was from 1800s to 1920s, which involved Sikh and Punjabi immigrants. The second wave was 1965 to 1980, which included higher educated and higher income immigrants. Third wave was from 1980 to 1990s, which diversified the Indian immigrants here in Washington state. You'll hear how this happened. And the fourth wave, 1990s to now, Indian immigrants came because of the tech industry. Then we end the episode talking about prejudice and discrimination. For example, the case of Bhagat Thin and his argument for whiteness to escape prejudice. And then talk about model minority and how the coexistence of culture, historical, economic, and social advantage can contribute to the model minority myth. A few terms that we mentioned in this episode that I wasn't sure if we fully explained. Sikh and Jain are Indian religions. The East India Company was an English and later British joint stock company founded in 1600. It was formed to trade in the Indian Ocean region and then eventually took over many countries in the area. The Asiatic Barge Zone, which was part of the Immigration Act of 1917, this was a United States act that aimed to restrict immigration by imposing literacy tests, but a big part of that was barring immigration from the Asia-Pacific Zone. Okay, here's Dr. Bott. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bott. And it's such a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah. Before we get started, tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. So I was born in Philadelphia. My parents migrated from India, specifically from Mumbai and Maharashtra in 1972, although we are ethnically Gujarati. So I grew up speaking Gujarati in the home. We spoke and ate Gujarati food, but my parents had spent a lot of time in Mumbai or Bombay. And me and my siblings were all born in the United States. So we are second generation. I ended up going on to college in Atlanta and then pursued my PhD at the University of Washington, where I specialized in gender, women, and sexuality studies with an emphasis on South Asian American culture and history. Prior to actually coming to grad school, I had spent some time thinking that I was going to pursue public health and work for women's reproductive rights organizations and actually came to UW with the intention of doing my MPH, Master's in Public Health, at the same time as my PhD. But 
as I started to get involved in the research and the community here, one of the things that really struck out to me was that unlike the East Coast, where I had grown up, which has tons of Indians and lots of community and temples and restaurants, and it was very visible, the population. One of the things that I found very interesting in the Pacific Northwest was that there almost seemed to be two separate communities and those communities didn't have that much interaction with each other. So there were the folks that had come earlier, starting from the 1950s, 60s onwards. And then there were the newer folks that had come as part of the high-tech migration as we saw the expansion of Microsoft and other tech companies here. As I began to dig in a little bit, I started to just get really interested in this issue or this topic of what was going on with these communities? How are they different from each other? What was the history here? So that led me to work on my first project, which resulted in the book Woods and Reflections, South Asians in the Pacific Northwest. And then also my later dissertation work, which collated in my book, High Tech Housewives. And that was really looking at newer immigration patterns. In the intervening years, I ended up going on and getting a job at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, where I earned tenure in 2017. In 2020, we ended up moving. I loved my position at the university. And we came back, my husband, my daughter and I, and came back to the Pacific Northwest. And we have been here ever since. And since then, I've been doing a variety of projects. I work with Bohai Downtown, the Museum of History and Industry. I teach classes occasionally at the University of Washington. I also have two screenplays in production right now. One is an animated feature film and one is a television pilot. And then I also work as a writer for various politicians in the area. I could do a whole episode just unpacking what you told me. But it's always nice to just talk about all the facets of the Indian community. Because I think when I first reached out to you, I told you about, I think, general perception. Oh, Indians. There are the people that work at Microsoft and Boeing. And definitely there's a group of people that do. But our history is complicated. Our migration pattern is complicated. And our place within the community, too. We're pretty diverse and trying to find that for ourselves in many ways. Okay, so I think I would like to start with just defining the community because it is so diverse. How do you start out defining it? How would you try to categorize all the different ways Indians are diverse? It is difficult to characterize because of our own history as a relatively young nation. India only gained independence from the British Empire in 1947. So prior to that, from about 1857 until 1947, for nearly 100 years, India was considered to be a colony under the British crown. And at the time, really encompassed a much larger geographic area than what we think of as today as India. So including what was Pakistan, what was Bangladesh. Nepal has always had a separate history, but sections of Nepal and the borderlands in northwest India have also been considered parts of India at different points. So these are part of the reason why it's so difficult to wrap our arms around even defining India, because the definition of India has changed over time. And who is an Indian? The history is much older than that in terms of the kind of diversity and the various empires that have had reign over regions in India. Thinking about the Mughals, which really brought on the flourishing renaissance of Islamic thought and art and education in India and really made it a very multicultural society. Then you have the kingdoms that were flourishing in the South that come from the Indian traditions as well, which have completely different languages and language structures than, say, North India, where you have the concentration of power at different points. I think that 
what we talk about and think about today is a post-1947 independent sovereign nation state of India. But really, our history as a people is much more complex and layered and geographically messier than I think that definition would suggest. Yeah, yeah. Let's go through some stats to get our listeners to anchor onto something as we move through this complex topic. So here's the stats that I have. So India has the second most people in the world. It's actually going to be higher than China, I think, in the next few years. It has two major language families that you just mentioned, and there's actually like 22 languages in India. India has an official language of the government, which is Hindi, which a lot of people think of as the national language of India, but it technically isn't. But English is quite widespread, especially in the well-educated population and used often for business. For religion, one statistic that I saw was 80% of people in India are Hindus, but there is 15% of people who are Muslims, 2% Christians, and then 1% Sikh, and something around 0.51% Jain. And they're all important parts of the community. And then caste also comes up when people think of India, because it has seeped into common knowledge about what it means to be Indian. And there's thousands of caste, and historically, they're related to occupations. But how would you talk about caste? Yeah, caste is an incredibly important and complex and controversial component of Indian society. And it's something that also bleeds into our lives as the diaspora. The one statistic that I would add to that excellent recap is just that we are the second largest diasporic population in the world, which means that we are the second largest proportion um, individuals living outside of our home country after the Chinese. And the estimates of the diaspora alone go into the tens of millions. I think there is something that I had read that there's not a single continent or single country on earth that doesn't have an Indian resident in it. A common joke with my parents is they'll say Nambali when Tamil is like our people. Wherever we go, they're like, hey, look, our people. It's true. My dad, you know, he's passed away since, but when he and my mom would travel, his feeling was, why not get Indian food wherever we go? We can always find an Indian (laughs) (laughs) Because of that, this idea of caste has also traveled within the diaspora, and it's also been shaped differently. So at its core, as you mentioned, caste is a concept that is considered to be inherited, that is tied to your family's status and occupation. It is something that became much more formalized under the British Empire as a way of creating a taxonomy of this society that many of the British colonists and prior to that traders were encountering and was often more fluid depending on where you were in India, but it became a little bit rigid and a little bit more of a taxonomy of ways of saying people belong to certain castes and that certain castes say if you're on the top, if you're Brahmin, that means that you're more likely to have access to education. They were considered the teachers, but also then became the category of folks that were tapped into becoming civil servants or being selected into learning English, which created a hierarchy that was on some level already established underneath the various histories in India, but also became much more rigid as the British colonization process unfolded. And caste is also interesting because caste isn't necessarily just tied to Hinduism. It also appears in some forms of Islam. It also appears in Buddhism, even within Sikhism. Caste also transcends the religious element, although it is the most closely tied to Hindu culture and religion. Today, caste is something that we are struggling with, I think, as a 
people, as a community, as folks that carry the inheritance and the privileges of what it means to come from certain castes or from others, and the ways in which certain opportunities have been denied because of your family's background and history. It's certainly something that we're grappling with today in terms of how do we undo some of the damage of having that rigid caste system in place, which meant that certain people had access to education, had access to government jobs, or even rank in military because of their family background, where others were denied that. Yeah. I like to get people to self-reflect too, even if they don't identify with the Indian community, how sometimes we can arbitrarily create these categories. Like you selectively choose one group of people for education or select jobs. And then as it becomes more and more entrenched, you're like, obviously, Brahmins are more educated, so they're the chosen ones. And then it can be hard to undo that. Absolutely. And we'll get into this a little bit when we talk about immigration. There's also been very specific policies that have been put in place both in India and in the United States that has encouraged the same sort of self-selection that end up creating the kinds of communities that we see in the United States today. Yeah. Thanks for that overview. So next, I want to cover the history of India. As I said before, you're going to laugh at me because you've done this so much. You're like, we can't do that. But between 1500 BC to 1200, there wasn't this large, vast empire ruling large parts of the land. But it became consolidated around 1206-ish until 1526 with the Delhi Sultanate. And it was technically an Islamic empire, but really people didn't call it that back in the day. They didn't say, oh, these people are Muslims, these people are Hindus. They just called it an empire, depending on their background. It could be Turkish or something like that. After 1526, the Mughal dynasty was the prevailing dynasty. It wasn't consolidated, what we think of India right now. But 1526 to 1857, the Mughal dynasty was in charge in large parts of the land. And to give people some context to that dynasty, in 1700, it was the wealthiest empire in the world with the largest military and had 24% of the world's economy and ruled 23% of the world's population. Just think about one in four people being part of this dynasty. During that time is when the East India Company came into India and started exercising military power and assuming some administrative functions in India and began to become more and more powerful until the Mughal dynasty essentially fell. But then the British Raj took over in 1858 until 1947. It wasn't technically a colony. Power was actually transferred to the crown, to Queen Victoria, and she was named the Empress of India. So between 1858 and 1947, we call what we know as current India's British Raj. And then 1947, India gained independence. So a lot of things there, but I wanted to spend a little bit more time on two parts of this history. One is the East India Company and the British Raj. And then 1947, the independence around the Partition Act. These are topics people have written essays and books about. But specifically around East India Company and the British Raj, I just wanted to talk with you about how that influenced India, especially what we think of India now. Yeah, so that's a great, succinct summary. So very good. (laughs) Thank you. 
with the East India Company that really opened up trade between India and the West. And as you mentioned, though, the trade routes had been well established under the Mughal Empire, and we know about the Silk Road and we know about the spice routes. There has been centuries documented interactions going back to Alexander the Great between what we think of as India and the West. But what we began to see is a more formalized relationship, particularly centered in England under the British crown. And even though you're right that India wasn't considered a colony in a traditional sense, there was an extractive relationship between the seat of power and the natural resources and labor power of India, meaning that we see the extraction and the change towards cotton and other kinds of resources, salt, for instance, become major resources that India begins to provide to the West. And one of the other things that come out of that is also labor and labor, both in terms of staffing other colonies that the United Kingdom were beginning to develop, sending indentured servants and indentured labor over to colonies, Fiji, Trinidad, West Indies. One of the ways in which that we saw through the East India Tea Company and then eventually the Raj itself creating this smaller world was by actually having people begin to work in the navies and then also work as seamen. And while in India, there was this push towards what we might call development, the establishment of a national railway system, the establishment of certain types of educational institutions, the spread of English and Christian missionaries across the lands. But you also had this other effect where you've got now Indians going all over the globe and settling in different ways. And one of the places that they end up settling is here in North America. And we see that in particular, six communities were tapped as having this reputation as being particularly martial in their training and being very strong coming from the farmlands as well. They were tapped to be part of the British Navy and acting as British soldiers as well, which actually led some of these Navy men to come to what we know of as Canada and then eventually settled most often in Vancouver and then along the west coast of the United States. But really the kind of history of seafaring and Indians moving around the world through these seafaring routes was even broader than that. And we have evidence that there were Bengali sailors that came to New York much earlier than we had anticipated. There were people that were traveling in all kinds of places. But I think the influence of the British Raj and the East India Tea Company was really to create a English-based language and education system in India, as well as certain types of infrastructure. It also created this mechanism for people using new sorts of routes to to go into other different parts of the world as well. Yeah. I grew up in Tamil Nadu where I spoke Tamil and I also actually was taught English in school, but I didn't know Hindi. And when I was in college, I studied abroad as an Indian. I went to North India and it was like a whole trip. I took Hindi, forgot everything, obviously, because none of my family speaks Hindi, so I never get to use it. But one thing that happened was we would go to these different places and I'll be traveling with white folks, Americans. And there's this deference to white people that I didn't realize with that group. Like we went to a Sikh Gurdwar and we were all sitting together and they made space for all the white people and they tried to push me out of the way. And I was like, wait, I'm like, we're standing right here. But I think there's a sense of respect to what's new. It's hard to state a principle across India because it's so diverse. But I think there's always been a sense of America representing something new or Great Britain, something new and advanced. I don't know if you feel like that's a part of the story here, too. 
Absolutely. And I think it's a really important part of the story that translates into what happens in the U.S. In part because, again, the reason I think that you and I are talking and trying to grapple with just how diverse it is because that still plays out in national politics today and in also how people identify themselves even within that large category of India. There is huge differences. And you point out quite nicely that you studied abroad in India as an Indian. Yeah. Learning Hindi is completely different than learning Tamil. And they are different language structures. The script is completely different. There's very little overlap in terms of their histories and linguistics. Thanks for acknowledging how hard it was. <laughs> I've done a lot of, I spent some time in Hyderabad and Bangalore. And I have to say, the Hindi that I studied for years did not help. So there's also just a lot of discrimination within the country to, between the North and the South. And some of that was also inculcated by the seat of the British Raj being moved to Delhi. Prior to that, it was in Kolkata. And again, these are northern cities. These kind of ghostly legacies of colonialism, I think, still inform how Indians see each other, whether or not they see themselves as a unified people, how they see themselves in a hierarchy that, yes, might be related externally to the West, but also internally. It's not that different. I think it's a ways from thinking about in the United States, the idea of being a Yankee versus a Southerner and having very different loyalties and ideas of what it means to be an American. Yeah, yeah, totally. And the next big piece of history that I wanted to cover was the 1947 Partition Act. What I wanted to highlight here is that's when the separation of Pakistan and India happened. But also this feeling that Muslims or Hindus are very different. Obviously, it was a culmination of events that led to that, but it wasn't always like that. And I wanted to just get your sense of how you would interpret it. Two countries were created because they felt like they couldn't live together. Yeah. So that's, again, all the podcasts are discovering that. But in its simplest form, the partition was an idea that was one of many in terms of how to transfer power peacefully to an independent state, whether it was going to be called India, whether it's going to be called Hindustan, whatever the names were. But it was something that was architected quickly. And largely by folks that were using outdated maps in England. We often think of William Mountbatten, who was the viceroy of India at the time, as being one of the chief architects of what ultimately became one of the most bloody and divisive and painful chapters, not even just in India, but in world history. We saw a massive displacement of people as these two nations were formed almost overnight. And lead up to this is we have figures that we might recognize. Mohandas Gandhi, who was an advocate for self-rule and nonviolence. And really, he had a vision for unified India. Gandhi's legacy is extremely complicated. We don't have space to go into that. But we also had other leaders at the time, including Jinnah, who ended up becoming the first leader in Pakistan, who were also advocating for fair representation of a Muslim population in this new kind of government that was going to be formed after the British had transitioned power out away from union power in India. What ended up happening was the worst of all worlds, where there were these new countries created, but they were created based on old population maps. They were created also without a lot of input from local communities or leaders. As I mentioned, some of these maps were outdated. So there's literally lines being cut through one person's farm. That's how all of a sudden you wake up and your farm's been split. Half of it's in India and half of it's in Pakistan. Then on top of that, you've got this other division of East and West Pakistan with India in the middle. 
And that was based on a geographic concentration of Muslims in what we now know as Bangladesh. They also had a completely different language and cultural history and had very little cultural connection to West Pakistan, which is where the seat of power was located. And that's where the capital cities were located. And so there was just a huge amount of turmoil and a huge displacement of people as all of a sudden we went from communities that were mixed, where people had lived for generations together. Certainly there's problems there too and hierarchies, but they weren't seen as being now foreign countrymen in the same village. And there was this fear too that if we are of the wrong religion, then we will have our rights taken away and we won't be able to practice our religion freely, but our lands will be taken away. And so one way that people dealt with it was literally taking trains or just going by foot and crisscrossing the subcontinent to end up in the so-called right country. The aftermath of partition, I think we're still living with the legacy of that today in terms of some of the animosities, some of the border disputes that we continue to see between India and Pakistan. And it had a massively disruptive effect on this new nation. Yeah, thanks for covering that. I know it's complicated. And as you said, we can talk about it for a while. But I do want people to understand what it means to be Muslim in India or a Muslim in America, but still Indian and that complicated identity people hold. And this history hasn't been resolved. We still hear about it in the news about the conflict between Pakistan and India. But I think the perception of India as a Hindu nation undervalues the diversity of religions there and the Muslims that continue to live there and have struggled because of that partition and probably have lost a lot of family members. Absolutely. And I also think in the shaping Indian culture, when you talk about contributions, value, art, so much of that is tied to Islamic cultures as well. And we can't really actually talk about India without thinking about all of those pieces being woven together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, now let's connect it to Washington State. And this is where you spent a lot of time and you've written books about it. I read about two waves, then I thought it was three waves. But before this podcast, you told me that you actually think of it as four waves. So in your words, how would you define these four waves into Washington state from India? I really think of the first wave of migration being the late 1800s up until the outbreak of World War I. So up until about the 1920s, World War I starts a little bit before that, but we'll say 1917. And that wave of migration was very much still tied to some of the migration that I was talking about before with Sikh migrants coming to work originally part of the British Royal Navy, some of them jumping ship in Canada and then staying on, others finding jobs and becoming farmers and establishing themselves in the Canadian colonies, and then also in the United States as well, along the West Coast. So that period of migration really is considered to be what we think of as the first wave. We then see what historians often talk about as a dead zone of immigration, starting from about 1917. That really goes until 1952, specifically here in Washington State. And until that period in 1952, with the Magnuson Act, what we saw was a real attempt to try to curtail immigration from what were the Asiatic Bard countries, which included India, but also included other nations as well across Asia. And it was after World War II that we began to see some of the loosening and opening up, and really not until 1952 that we saw some real change in immigration policies that allowed for more people to come from those areas. And then in 1965, we see what we often talk about and think about as the second big wave of migration 
which came with the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, also known as the Hard Seller Act, which radically changed how we do immigration in the United States, where we move from having a country-based quota instead to having a need-based immigration system that's tied to education, labor needs of the United States, and family reunification. The third wave we really think about is starting in 1980, going on until the 1990s. And that was a period of time that we really see certain things happen in India that actually pushed a lot of migration. One was the, the Golden Temple Massacre in Amritsar and in Punjab, and that pushed a lot more Sikh migrants out of India because of the discrimination that they were experiencing, a lot of the violence that was happening in the country around Sikh that. We also saw changes in refugee laws at that period of time. And we see people coming from other parts of South Asia to the United States as refugees, including from Nepal and also some armed conflict that started escalating in Sri Lanka. And then I also think and talk about us living in a fourth wave of migration right now, which came really starting from the 1990s, but picked up real steam in the 2000s. And that has been tied very heavily to global migration for work and short-term labor that have been used specifically in the tech industries, finance, education, and healthcare. And that has been tied specifically to what we talk about as the H-1B visa program. So we've got these kind of four waves of immigration and Washington state is often seen as being one of the first ports of entry, starting from those 1890s immigrants that were coming here and really establishing themselves as part of the industries that were already here in the United States. With this period of time, though, we found that you have these mostly men that were coming as laborers coming to the United States to work in industries in Washington here, like canning, like lumber, working in the seaport industries, working to help build the railroads. These early Indian immigrants were very much a part of the population that built the West Coast expansion of the railroads here. But they were also coming in a period of time where there was a lot of racial animosity and discrimination and fear that these were new immigrants and that they were immigrants that were going to change the United States culture, which is just the theme that we continue to see over and over again. But one of the things that happened in this period of time was the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Acts, which started in 1882. And Indians were very much impacted by this because the Chinese Exclusion Acts were a series of laws that were passed intended to limit the immigration and the settlement of Asian immigrants. So things were put in place like saying that women couldn't migrate or if they were migrating, they couldn't stay on here because there was a fear from the federal government that if you had let women come, then people would establish families here and then they'd stay. There were also other kinds of limits put into place in terms of what kinds of industries people could live in, what kind of land they could own, what kind of businesses they could work in. There were components of it that were tied to miscegenation, saying that it was illegal to have intimate relations or marry somebody from the white communities that were here. That led to some really interesting kind of phenomenon. So one of the things more in California than here that we see has been the establishment of these really old Mexican Punjabi communities where you have Punjabi men that because of these limitations on who they could marry, ended up becoming very closely connected and integrated into Mexican farm working communities. In Washington State, we actually had this kind of old, if small, but vibrant community that in some ways was tamped out by these immigration policies as the United States moved towards isolation in the period leading up to World War One, Yeah, and I think we can call out the Loose Seller Act of 1946, which said only like about 100 Indians could come in a year. 
and this history with the United States of being a quote welcoming place for immigrants for labor, but then not wanting to truly integrate people that provide for the United States in whatever way that may be. Absolutely. And I think those country-based quotas are really important because when we talk about histories of immigration to the United States, if you're coming from Northern Europe, there were almost no quotas in place for how many people could immigrate from France, from England, from Germany for a period of time. And there were other kinds of quotas put into place depending on when and where people were migrating. But that 100 immigrant cap was in place for a long time. That was in place up until about 1965. So it really did dampen the ability for people to come here. Now, 65 becomes an important turning point, both for the United States and for Washington State in particular, but also globally. Because while you do have this limitation on migration to the United States, there was a boom in Indian out-migration after 1947 to other places like Canada, like the UK, other parts of the Commonwealth. But we saw a sort of nativism grow in England in the same period of time that we saw the United States begin to open up some immigration policies. So you might be familiar with Enoch Powell, who was a, a leader in the United Kingdom, who gave a very infamous speech called Rivers of Blood speech, where he talked about this fear that is many functionally non-white commonwealth citizens keep coming into England, they would lose their cultural identity. There was a real move to push back on immigration. And so the United States in some ways saw this to their advantage because this is the same period of time in the 1960s that the United States is really trying to compete with the USSR, the Russian Federation at the time, in terms of the space race, the race to, to get to the moon, but also just in terms of technological innovation. And Indians become a solution and immigration more broadly becomes a solution for the United States who are having a hard time getting enough labor, getting enough technically trained English-speaking folks in to work in these kind of scientific industries. Because there was also a huge investment in the post-1947 period in India to try to create a technically trained workforce that could help develop the nation, India found itself with a surplus of people that were looking for work that had been trained often in the math and science and that were looking for opportunities that maybe they weren't finding in India and then this opening of immigration in the United States. So that 1965 Immigration Act changes our country-based quota towards a quota system that's really the basis of our immigration policy still today. And the number one category that we still have some people come to the United States through is the family reunification component which means that if you have family here, you can sponsor other family members. You can bring your families with you, depending on the visas that you're on. And you can apply for permanent residency or naturalization. And secondary to that were new avenues for students to come and new types of labor visas as well. Shifting away from saying we only want people from certain countries to saying we want people that have these skills or that these ties really has shaped and opened up the floodgates of people coming from all over the world. Indians in particular were able to take advantage of this Closing down in England, the lack of opportunities in India in the post-World War II, post-independence period, and also the opening of immigration policies here. So thinking about the first wave as being from the 1890s until World War I, the second wave being the post-1965 change in the Immigration Nationality Act. I think the third wave is starting from the 1980s onwards. And part of what happened in that period of time is that even though we don't think of Ronald Reagan as being necessarily a progressive president, he did actually put some policies in place that open up avenues for immigration through 
refugee channel. This is also the period of time that the United States has just emerged from the Vietnam War. And there were just a large number of refugees coming from Southeast Asia. But one of the things that also happened is that this became a new category for people to come to the United States based on religious persecution, civil war, natural disasters, other kinds of famine, other kinds of things that were happening globally. And so in this period of time, we also see other kinds of immigration come in. And unlike the kind of 1965 immigrants who tended to already come to the United States with some English language education because of the criteria that the United States was pushing, looking for people that could come as students, that could come as workers. If their family reunification, chances are that there's some social economic mobility already at play. Starting in 1980, the demographics change. And we begin to see folks that are coming from a more diverse economic background and linguistic background as well. In beginnings of some caste differentiation, but that still really is pretty minor in comparison to the overwhelming upper caste that are able to take advantage of these immigration policies. So that changes a lot of what we begin to see. And you see more Indians also moving into what we think of as working class sectors. We see more Indians that are coming as part of maybe family reunification, but that didn't have the same levels of education. We also see a boom in terms of Indian economies, right? So this is the period of time that we also think of as the growth of small business ownership. So I am a Gujarati. We come from a community that are stereotypically known to be merchants and business owners. My dad owned a small business. We were pest control operators. The motel industry also exploded. And I think today there's a wonderful book by Paul Dingra that looks at this called Life Behind the Lobby. Over 50% of all motels in the United States are owned by Indians and Gujaratis in particular. Yeah. What a statistic. <laughs> so there's just this huge growth and explosion of Indian communities, right? You know, restaurants, convenience stores open up. You see all kinds of things. I also think, though, that the 1990 period becomes a slightly different immigration pattern. And that really is the point at which we start to see the shift towards what we know of today as the high tech or the highly educated global Indian migration pattern. So in 1990, under George W. Bush, we see the revamping of an older visa known as the H-1B visa, which initially was part of the Bracero program, which was a program intended to bring over temporary workers from Mexico to work in agricultural industries in the United States. And that was a guest worker visa, which meant that people were intended to go back after a period of time to their home country. In 1990, that visa was resurrected and was intended to be something that could be used in other industries that were looking for workers, but not necessarily for permanent residents. And so very quickly, the kind of technology industries that were growing in this period of time saw a big boom across the development of the Internet, but then also just software and personal computing began to really use these visas as a way to tap into global labor markets with the emphasis on technical education in India and the high percentage of English speaking workers. India became a very natural fit for recruiting and also utilizing these visas. And so by the 2000s, as we began to fear the turn of the millennium and with lots of fears around Y2K, the numbers of these visas were actually increased almost up to 200,000 being issued a year in that 1999 to 2000 period. The number has since dropped down to about 65,000 new visas. We saw this kind of push for the United States to say, we need this labor. 
And we need to find people that can fill these gaps in our economy. And it's been used in all kinds of places. I'm sure you see it in the medical field as well. The H-1B visa is, is used also for academics that are working in universities. It's used in finance heavily. Nursing uses it a lot. There's a slightly different variation for nurses, but that's a huge stream of nurses come through to the United States on these types of temporary visas. And then probably the largest proportion has really been the technology industry. And I should say that even though this is a visa that is open to anyone from around the world, 75% of visas go to people of Indian origin. So it has radically changed <laughs> the Indian population. and. To your point earlier, it also has been one of the ways that we've seen people immigrate from other parts of India that didn't come through that sort of earlier North Indian concentration. So we saw a bigger population of folks coming from cities like Chennai, Bangalore, that had been developing also their own technology and math and science institutions as well. Yeah. Thanks for summarizing three books, the major summarizer, but I appreciate it. I think our <laughs> listeners will appreciate it too, because it's another way of just thinking about like the diversity of the population, not just by religion, language, but also when they came to the U.S. and why they came and what allowed them to come. I think people will see that and the different kinds of Indians they encounter. I'll say that. I want to transition now to talking about the immigrant experience. I think as I talked to you earlier about this, we are covering different immigrant communities. There are some common themes across the immigrant experience, which I think in some ways are exemplified through the Indian experience. I'm hoping to cover some of that today. And the main topics that I want to cover are prejudice and discrimination, then the idea of being a model minority. Absolutely. I think that while there are very specific histories to the Indian experience of immigration and complicated and very pathways for getting here, I think you're right that there are many common experiences that the Indian community shares with other immigrant groups, particularly around the experience of what it means to come into a new country and be labeled or seen as not American because of your food, culture, race, categorization, religion, language, all of these kinds of things. And there was a famed sociologist, Herbert Gans, who talked a lot about this idea of immigrant downward mobility. So even though we've talked about how many of the earlier immigrants that came to the United States had come here because they had some sort of skill that was found valuable to the United States and were fairly educated, relatively speaking, and then tapped to come here, Upon coming to the United States, many immigrants do experience what we think about as the shift from having high status in their home country, having some sort of status, to having a drop in how they are perceived. So one really common piece of this that's probably familiar to you in the medical field is the recognition of medical graduate credentials from other institutions outside of the United States. And many of the folks that came to the United States that might have been trained as doctors or in the medical profession in India have to come to the United States and find that they aren't able to start working. They have to go through a new set of boards and go through their qualifications. But then often the experience that they might have had in India isn't counted towards their tenure or longevity here. I think there's also this other way in which certain kind of credentials aren't taken as seriously in the United States. For instance, in India, the education system there is modeled after the British system. So college starts when we would still be thinking about the latter years of high school. 
And that is considered to be a degree that's not necessarily recognized in the United States. So my mom was a great example where she had a bachelor's of arts and she had studied English literature, but because she had completed three years of college in India, her degree was never recognized in the United States. Same thing for my dad, because he functionally went through an electrical engineering program, but then only was recognized as having the equivalent of an associate's degree here. And there is this kind of feeling that people experience of having to re-credential themselves and having to reestablish themselves. And that takes time and money and can also mean that people are taking positions that are commensurate with where they would have been in their home country. And then I think on top of that, there is this feeling of discrimination and wanting to combat that discrimination. So I grew up in New Jersey in the 1980s, and this was a complicated time. We had some representation on TV, and that representation was pretty bad. <laughs> We're talking about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and eating monkey brains and then Apu on The Simpsons, and that was about it in terms of what you're seeing with brown characters, with Indian characters on television. But there was also a period of time where there was kind of this movement called the Dot Busters that was picking up speed in New Jersey, where it was literally people being attacked for wearing bindis or the ornaments that women tend to wear on their foreheads and Indian businesses being attacked. You know, my parents owned a small pest control business and our trucks were egged. There was a lot of open discrimination and people really feeling that acutely in that period of time. So there was that street level discrimination, but then there's also the discrimination that's happening in the workplace. So Indians are often seen as good workers, they're hard workers, but they're not seen as creatives. They're not seen as the people who can actually think innovatively. That is another place where people began to really feel that discrimination or hit glass ceilings where they are recruited, they're valued for their skills, but then they're not seen as having the right set of soft skills or the right set of attributes to really progress in American society. And I think the way that Indians have compensated for that kind of discriminatory behavior has been trying to fit in as what we think about or talk about as the model minority in the United States. And I have a daughter who's eight years old, and we were talking about this recently and talking about how people in immigrant communities sometimes don't align themselves with other groups that are marginalized or oppressed because of the fear that they then themselves would also be seen as marginalized or you be oppressed. And I was explaining to her a little bit, if you're new to a school and there's a really popular kid, and even if that popular kid doesn't act the best or the most kindly, you're more likely to want to be in the shadow of the popular kid than you are to be the target of that kid. So you're going to do everything you can to try to act like the popular kid, right? Yeah, I certainly did. I came here when I was in fifth grade. I'm like, I got to do what it takes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think that there is the sense that Indians very much were looking out for themselves and wanting to fit in where they thought they would be able to fly under the radar or try to find ways to be welcomed in a country that could often feel very hostile. And I think that has had some unfortunate effects too, right? There is a divisiveness that can happen where Indians aren't as maybe politically engaged as they could or ought to be. I think there's still this remnant of feeling like we don't get involved in politics or we don't shape policies because we've been okay so far. Although here in Washington state, we're seeing a big shift. We're seeing a lot more, particularly South Asian women, run for office, advocating for immigrant justice more broadly beyond our own communities. Yeah, that's a good way to encompass it. I heard two facets. This one is being object of discrimination in the way just you're living life. And in other ways, how you essentially attempt to discriminate others to distance yourself from the oppressed. So I'm thinking about 
if we go back in time, and maybe this is where I'll kind of loop this in, 1906 or 1913, where Bagat Thind, if I'm saying his name right, tried to argue that he was actually white because he's Caucasian. This also links to like, what does white mean? But he was granted a citizenship by one judge and another person said, no, the common man wouldn't say you're white. I don't care if you're Caucasian. So this idea of I need to be associated with this group who clearly have the power. Absolutely. And Bagatzin Thind is a great example. Yeah. So his case finally came up in front of the Supreme Court in 1923. But as you point out, he had started this petition for becoming a naturalized citizen much earlier. He actually served in the U.S. military in World War One here at Fort Lewis in Washington state. And then he went on and his initial petitions were through the Superior Courts in Spokane. And at certain points, he was granted citizenship. At other points, he was stripped of his citizenship. It actually happened twice. And one of the arguments, as you said, he made in the 1923 Supreme Court case was that because of the shared history in the Caucasus region, that Indians should be considered white was quickly denied <laughs> by the courts and then it became part of a longer history of race-based understandings of citizenship in the United States. That's a complicated legacy too, right? The claiming whiteness in order to fit in. At the same time, this was a man that had given his service and his life to becoming an American and really was trying to figure out what argument would work for the period of time that he was living in. But I think we still live with that legacy of wanting to be recognized for the communities that we come from and the people that we are, while also trying to figure out how we fit into a hierarchy that's been established through social, cultural, and legal means. I'm going to channel my dad here. I think he's going to listen to the podcast. I don't know if he'll appreciate this or not. Amy, <laughs> you said there's a glass ceiling, but look at all these CEOs, Indian CEOs everywhere, Google, Microsoft, you name it. <laughs> what is this glass ceiling you're talking about and this model minority? <laughs> I'm pointing that out because I think we also downplay what is cultural norm versus historical, economic, and social advantage. We look at Indians in these high places and say, wow, the Indian culture has got it. Like, we know how to educate folks <laughs> who are like good citizens and are changing our world. That's probably overly simplistic. And I want to connect that to the historical advantage that helped us get to where we are. And you've talked about some of that already, which is this post-colonial period where India was trying to determine who it is as a country and create a workforce to develop the country, which matched perfectly with American Still. needs at that time. But also the education of English, I think, is a huge part of it, too, which was different people's vision of what India should be. Could you talk just about English and how that became a big part of the advantage? And is there anything else that you would add to this advantage that's outside of what some people think is the culture of India? Yeah, I think that education mm -hmm. piece, even as it was being established in India in that post-colonial period, was still very political. It was still highly tied to diplomacy efforts to try to gain influence through what we think of as soft diplomacy by the United States and by other countries as well in these newly formed post-colonial states. Because that period from 1947 to the 1960s, 1968, 1970, we saw this radical decolonization of the world. And we also saw Two superpowers still trying to figure out how they maintain balance across this globe being the USSR and the American nation state. So education became one of these ways of really exerting soft influence. In India, there are these highly revered institutions called the India Institutes of Ecology or Indian Institutes of Management, the IITs. And they're on par with our MIT and other technical institutes here. These schools were intentionally designed 
in partnership with Western nation. Literally from the design of the curriculum to the recruitment of faculty to wanting to train students and then have them study abroad or go abroad, they were done in conjunction with the nation states of the United States, of Germany, of England, of Russia to actually develop curriculum and to inculcate this kind of global body of workers and thinkers. And so what we see come to fruition in the United States is often the kind of investment in these kinds of institutions with the hope that there would be friendly feelings towards America from Indians because there was a lot of fear that the United States would lose control over the South Asian continent because of the close ties between the USSR and India. And in fact, the way that we are the world's largest democracy, India still remains the world's largest democracy, but it was a socialist democracy and it was a closed society for a long time. And it looked to the USSR as a model for developing the nation through five-year centralized plans. And so the United States was really fearful that they would lose influence there and that this could be a place that could become under Russian influence. And so there was, again, this forward diplomatic political pressure to try to bring people here and to try to create these good feelings, which was to the benefit of the Indian individuals as well. And then this other component that I've talked a lot about is just the really strong role that immigration policy plays in selecting and refining communities. So these aren't natural processes, I think, or they're not um, equal processes where anybody can apply and have the same shot of coming to the United States. They're already processes that require certain kinds of access to resources and privileges before people can even get here. And so that in itself, I think, is one of these reasons where it's easy to look around and say, yeah, look at all the CEOs. It must be our culture. It must be the, I don't know, that we are so family oriented. We're just smart people. <laughs> We're just yeah, smart people. Exactly. <laughs> it's just all that rice that we eat. Yeah. The story is so much more about politics and geopolitics and immigration policy and investments in a post-colonial period and in the kind of pre-colonial relationships that India had as well. Yeah, exactly. And I have one more question. All immigrants struggle with trying to find their identity here. I think Indians experience the same. I want to make two points about that. One is that it's not always just about us finding a place, but also contributing to this place called Washington. And Washington has changed because we are here as immigrants, as Indians. And community organizations can be vibrant at the same time can exclude people because I think there was a quote in your book of a person's perspective that homogenization of Indian culture sometimes in community organizations and the overemphasis of middle class Indian experiences. So all Indians you meet, you may not want to connect them to this one Indian group. They may not be relevant or it may not be what they're looking for. So just be cognizant of that. Anything else that you would add? Oh, yeah. The one thing I would say there, too, is we have seen a real shift in that book. I talk a lot about the India Association of Western Washington and the important role that it played as a cultural link, both for people locally, but then also to this idea of India. What's so interesting to me is I left Seattle for several years and been back since 2020 is that they've actually rebranded and changed their name. And now what they see themselves is really as a cultural service organization rather than cultural promotion. And I love that. I love that they see themselves, to your point, as not just here to maintain or hold on to this idea of Indianness, but really to take our own community strengths and bring them to the larger community. So they've been hugely instrumental in promoting COVID vaccination, getting elders out of their homes and breaking that kind of isolation, health and fitness and doing health screenings, getting involved with some of the unhoused populations and helping to talk about and deal with homelessness here. 
these are things that you were correct, weren't necessarily part of that middle class Indian experience or people didn't identify themselves in that way. But there's been a change, I think, in the community, or at least for some folks, not everyone, for some folks in terms of what we can offer back to the communities that we live in. Yeah. Thank you. My last question is, you're well known, so I don't know if your doctor will listen to this, (laughs) but (laughs) you could tell me either a bad experience with yourself and family and what lesson was from that, or a good experience that people should aspire to being an Indian seeking care. What does that look like to you when you go to the doctor? Yeah, that's a great question. I grew up with my grandparents. I want to say that. It was my mom's parents. They migrated to the United States when I was eight and they lived with us until they passed away. So my grandfather passed away when I was 31 and my grandmother the year after him. And one of the things that was just fascinating was that I watched a really intergenerational experience of healthcare. I have a younger brother who's 10 years younger than me, so I was pretty cognizant of all of the life cycle. And one of the hardest things, and I'll say this to you, my father passed away of a heart attack when he was 66. And as we know, heart disease and diabetes are a huge problem in our community. And one of the things that was hard is even though my father had an Indian cardiologist, I think that there was still a disconnect for him in terms of how to eat the way that he still wanted to eat and still make the kind of lifestyle choices that he needed to make to care for himself in a different way, how to manage some of those pieces and for him statins and taking medication and things like that. I'm not sure that he was able to communicate his own reservations because of his fear or his deference to the medical system. And that was one place that I saw a bit of a breakdown between, I'm not saying that it's necessarily cultural, but it was this feeling of not wanting to challenge authority, even if it was not making sense for him or he wasn't necessarily following protocols or doing things that would have potentially change to save his life. I think that was one thing that I recognize that as a care provider, knowing that one of these ways that the model minority component plays out is not actually speaking up or being an advocate in the same ways and not pushing against, especially a medical doctor who's so revered in our communities as well. And then the other part of it too was watching my grandparents go through healthcare here, especially towards the ends of their lives. And my grandfather had English, but my grandmother never did. She never learned it. She stopped school when she was in fourth grade. She was married when she was 15 years old. And so she never felt comfortable being able to really express pain in her body. And so I think that was another place where it was very important to get culturally specific translation. That was the only way that we were able to diagnose what was happening because she was just so conditioned to not talk about her own pain. So I think those are my family examples. For me, I think now it's trying to figure out like what it means to carry the legacy of some of these Indian traits. So for instance, we eat a mostly vegetarian diet, but I still have high cholesterol, even though that is something that's very much hereditary. It's my good cholesterol, not my bad cholesterol. Every single time I meet with a doctor, it's having to talk through what that actually means for the Indian population, how it looks a little bit different, how my numbers aren't necessarily the same. My husband is white, American. And our numbers are not that different, but the ratios are really different. And so just having somebody that can understand, like, we actually eat (laughs) mostly vegetarian diet. It's not a diet change that we need to address. Those kinds of things have come up for me as well. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. I know we're at time. I'm going to let you go, but I really appreciated our conversation today. And I think our listeners learned a lot. 
from this and I think I should be friends with you and maybe you can help me raise maybe you can help me raise my child in a both Indian and American context the struggle that parents always was like okay not too American but I'm not I can't really make them super Indian because I'm pretty American you know oh my goodness I my daughter's so funny because she's eight and we live in Sammamish and She's so keen to learn a South Asian language. She's just like, why don't we speak anything else at home? Like her best friend speaks Tamil and one speaks Punjabi and the two speak Hindi. We're like, I spent my whole childhood trying not to speak. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Trying to get this accent down. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, exactly. Thanks again for joining me, Raj Sundar, in another episode of the Healthcare for Humans podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, remember to check out our website, healthcareforhumans.org, for show notes and a full transcript of the episode. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. I'll see you for part two of the India series at the next episode. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duwamish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duwamish. Hey!